0: America is politically and culturally divided. Revelations from the January 6th investigation and the very recent Supreme Court decisions on abortion and guns only underline this. One side demonizes the other. The middle has been weakened. Nuance is now often replaced by taunts and jeers. The conflict threatens discourse and democracy, as well as efforts to build a better world. We thought it would be a good time to share this episode first recorded last year.
2: Amanda Ripley, High Conflict.
3: High Conflict isn't going anywhere. It's, it is the destination. Whereas good conflict can be heated and stressful and unpleasant and uncomfortable, but it's going somewhere.
0: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Have you been driven nuts? by someone who says something crazy about politics or is seized by a conspiracy theory? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: You know, I spent years fighting against those 9-11 conspiracy theories, and I saw how people would work themselves up into a frenzy where they're the good people who know what's right, and the people they're arguing against are completely bad, completely evil, and need to be somehow just banished from the conversation.
0: But there is something called good conflict, which involves complexity and can teach us to be better people. We take a look at that and also high conflict, why it's threatening to tear us apart. Our guest
2: is Amanda Ripley. Like us, she's a solutions journalist who's committed to reporting on constructive ideas as well as describing deeply serious problems. Her latest book is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out.
0: Amanda Ripley joins us from Washington, DC. Welcome to How Do We Fix It?
3: Thanks for having me, good to be here.
0: Every society has conflict, so what's the difference between good conflict and bad conflict, or high conflict?
3: High conflict can start small, but it gradually takes on a life of its own. So it really can be about almost anything. But what happens is over time, it usually becomes an us versus them kind of feud, and our brains behave differently, and we start making mistakes about ourselves, the other side, and the possibilities. And slowly but surely, maybe the most chilling thing I've seen in every high conflict I've looked at all over the world is that eventually the people involved start to mimic the behavior of their adversaries.
2: You've said that when a country is experiencing high conflict, it begins to hallucinate. Is that what's going on in the U.S. right now?
3: I think a lot of people are trapped in this political high conflict, and they are not seeing the other side clearly. There are threats, but some percentage of them are mythological, and some percentage of them are factual. And figuring out what that percentage is, is very hard in high conflict. But I also want to point out, most Americans want out of this high conflict. They very much want to see a different way of disagreeing among their politicians, in the news media, and they are frequently tuning out of politics and the news, which is a big problem, but totally understandable. And this is what often happens in high conflict, is that the most flexible, open-minded, reasonable people flee the scene and the extremists take over.
0: When there's high conflict, is the conflict itself, the me against you, us versus them, more important than the argument about whatever divides us?
3: Right. That is one of the diabolical things, is the conflict becomes its own reality one of the distinctions between high conflict and good conflict is this exact point. High conflict isn't going anywhere. It is it is the destination. Whereas good conflict can be heated and stressful and unpleasant and uncomfortable, but it's going somewhere. There are things you don't yet know. There's still some curiosity that flashes through every so often.
2: As a reporter, you've worked all over the world. Was there a particular experience that sort of triggered the idea that this topic could make a book?
3: You know, after the 2016 election, I found myself sort of at a loss trying to understand how to be useful, you know, in this climate. when It was so polarized. It didn't seem to matter what facts you uncovered. Uh, I mean, it mattered, but not the way it once did. Most of the places I wrote for were not trusted by half the country. Um, So I sort of went off in search of some some understanding that I had missed. And it turned out that the study of conflict, the people who are immersed in conflict, who understand it intimately, for me was a total eye-opener. Like I could now make sense. I mean, there were lots of forces at work, right? But that overlay, that map was very helpful to understand how conflict itself operates and can become like a it can it can start to run on autopilot.
0: What was the result of this insight?
3: I worked on a piece called Complicating the Narratives, which was commissioned by the Solutions Journalism Network, to learn, you know, what could journalists learn from people who work in conflict that we aren't already doing? You know, how could we be more useful instead of just, you know, inflaming the conflict? Who has gone from high conflict to good conflict? So I found examples, you know, a politician in California who uh, had gotten trapped in high conflict and then moved to good conflict, a former gang leader in Chicago who had spent years in a vendetta with a rival gang and moved into good conflict, and all kinds of people and communities who had made that shift and, and then could help us understand how the rest of us could do that too.
2: Another story that you write about is an environmental activist named Mark Linus, who originally was a very extreme uh, left-wing kind of climate extremist who was also very opposed to genetically modified foods and other things, and today is more of a pragmatic environmentalist who really argues for a more, (laughs) to acknowledge complexity (laughs) and and understand more the nuance that solving these problems requires. Tell us a little bit about his story
3: yeah, Mark is a great example of someone who was pulled into conflict for all the right reasons. You know, early on when genetically modified uh, food was a new concept, not well understood, not yet well researched, he had legitimate worries about uh, whether we should trust big food companies to, you know, influence the food supply in this way. And he did not trust the the food companies. He did not trust the government to do that. He's from England. He helped start the movement against genetically modified food um, in England that spread elsewhere. And, you know, again, very good reasons for his skepticism. And over time, though, as more science and research came out about the fact that actually, Carefully managed, genetically modified food could dramatically lower the use of pesticide by about a third, because you could now create crops that were, you know, by themselves resistant to pests so that you didn't need to use the chemicals, Um, and that could really help with famine and, and food shortages in poorer countries, right? So there were real values to these crops that he sort of missed, because in high conflict, we lose our peripheral vision, so to speak. And you miss really important things, because you get so focused on winning and on the fight.
2: I mean, he he was actually going out and chopping down genetically modified corn in the dead of night, right?
3: Right. He was like, you know, and he was not someone who really thought of himself as Being (laughs) quite that extreme, but next thing he knew, he was in the middle of the night with a machete chopping down genetically modified corn with other people, and you know, getting chased by police dogs and uh, throwing pies in people's faces. So his story is one of sort of a classic example of what's known as contact theory, the most studied. Intervention to reduce prejudice between groups who don't understand each other is contact. And when people develop relationships across big divides, it does necessarily complicate our understanding of the conflict and allows us to gain back some of that peripheral vision. So in in Mark's case, he'd been writing books and magazine articles about science and climate change in addition to his activism work. And he got to know many scientists who were also working on climate change, and he started to really respect them and see them as whole people, and he started to really respect the scientific method, and he started to really make that part of his own identity. And so eventually, it just became untenable to keep denying this evidence for him because of these human relationships. And to his credit, you know, he remains quite passionate and quite far left on many, many issues. If you follow him on Twitter, you know, he's no... He's not shy about his opinion. So it's not that he became a moderate. I want to be clear about this, uh, because a lot of people think I'm arguing for civility and moderation and unity. And that's that's really not the case.
0: This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we'll dig deeper into solutions to high conflict in just a minute. But first, Jim, you're really good at this Give us the pitch for, for why people should recommend, follow us, give us five stars.
2: Yeah. yeah. So if you're listening to this, you share our belief that we need to have better, more productive, healthier conversations in this country. And that doesn't mean just, oh, everyone should just agree in the middle and compromise on everything. But it does mean we need to acknowledge nuance, complexity, the difficulty of these things, and listen to the other side. We're really devoted to that but we, we do need help. We need people to spread the word about our podcast. It's, it helps us so much if you go on your favorite platform and leave us that five-star review. A comment is always great. Share our work on social media. Even just talk us up with your friends and uh, help us move this conversation forward.
0: If you listen to a bunch of podcasts and are looking for another one made in a similar spirit to ours... Check out our friends at The Purple Principle. This is a nonpartisan podcast for independent-minded listeners. The latest mini-series of The Purple Principle is about California politics with some fascinating insights. The Purple Principle, free on any podcast platform. Search for it. Now back to our conversation with Amanda Ripley. Amanda, I think I know what... Your answer is going to be, but does social media make everything worse with high conflict?
3: As it's currently designed, yes. It does not need to do that, though, right? I mean, I'm always amazed how, let's say your, your, your dishwasher breaks. You can go online and find 47 really helpful posts from strangers trying to help you. And you can go back and forth with them, and they will be curious and thoughtful and forgiving and all the things that we want people to be. Um, And those sites are usually designed with those norms in place. So there is a way to design (laughs) infrastructure and human institutions to incite good conflict. It's what we've done through most of human history. We have right now too many social media platforms and news media platforms, frankly, that are attention economy models, which go with the laziest option possible, which is to try to seize your attention often through indignation, fear, anger, and really incite high conflict.
0: You keep talking about good conflict. Why is good conflict good?
3: That's a great way to ask the question. I used to think that conflict was just generally bad, right? But what I've learned is that it can be really good and better than no conflict at all, which is sort of hard to accept at first. (laughs) For most of us try to avoid conflict, right? That's very human. And so um, good conflict can push us to be better, right? As individuals, as groups, as societies, that's how we stand up for ourselves. That's how we get challenged. That is the only way we can really evolve.
2: You've written a lot about this pandemic we've all been living through since the early days and in one of your pieces you noted that at first there was a lot of of unity among the public about you know doing the things that were necessary, politicians agreed about the need for covid relief, but partly because of bad messaging from political leaders, but also a lot of bad reporting from the media somehow we we went downhill into a place where many people's opinions about the pandemic are rooted in deep conflict and deep antipathy towards what they see as the other side. What did we do wrong?
3: Well, I think uh I think there's at least two things going on. One is this was a very long is a very long disaster. Long disasters are very hard because There is this golden moment, this golden hour right after a disaster begins when people are naturally called to solidarity, to help each other. They can be very generous. And we saw that all over the world, even in Congress. That first package, uh, that stimulus package passed 96 to 0 in the Senate. Um, And eight out of 10 Americans said that they felt like we were all in this together back in March of 2020. So there was that moment. And it is hard to sustain anywhere in the world, right? It is hard to sustain when there's when it's chronic, when the stress is chronic, there's not a chance to really fully recover is very hard on humans. And actually, I think, too much to ask. The second thing, which is to your question, is that we did not manage it, many of us, as well as we could have, particularly at the federal level. But the pre-existing problem was profound distrust in our news media, in our government, right? Without trust is very hard to manage it well, even if you're doing everything right, which we weren't, right? As soon as things get politicized, which they did, it's very difficult to come back from that.
0: I lived in Britain for many years, reported on IRA bombings in London, actually heard a few of them go off, and also visited Northern Ireland. For a long time, the, the crisis in Northern Ireland seemed like it would never be worked out. And yet, eventually, there was progress. You also have looked into the civil war in Colombia, which was a far worse conflict than Northern Ireland. And there are cases where people went from hatred to cooperation. Could you talk about that?
3: Yeah, you know, I went to Colombia for the book because they've got, you know, half a century of experience trying to find peace, trying to reintegrate people who have left the violent civil war there. And they've learned some things, right? And one of the things that they've learned is that People carry around a lot of different identities, right? And that's true in conflict. We all do. And part of the challenge is to find the right moments and the right way to revive other identities outside of the high conflict. Often, not always, the way that seems to work best is to call on people's identities as parents or children. This is a deep identity that is important to most of us on some level, and often high conflict runs counter to that identity. So when you are a FARC guerrilla fighter in the jungle and your child has no parent there to take care of her, as was the case for Sandra Bustos, who I write about in the book, that pull on her was very magnetic as well just like the conflict. And that was also true for for Curtis Toller. It's true for men, too. You know, I mean, Curtis Toller is a former gang leader in Chicago, and one of the reasons he he found a way out of high conflict was because of his son. You know, realizing, watching his son at his eighth grade graduation and realizing that, he, you know, he himself, Curtis, was either going to be in prison or dead uh, by the time his son graduated from high school. And that pull towards this other part of our identity It's very powerful, and it's not enough, right? But it's something that we can work with, potentially.
2: How did Curtis Toler overcome that life in Chicago gangs and become really a force for good in that city?
3: It's an incredible story. One of the things he did, which I mentioned because I think it's something we could all think about doing, (laughs) which is he distanced himself from the conflict entrepreneurs in his life. So conflict entrepreneurs are the people or platforms or pundits who exploit conflict or at least delight in conflict for their own ends. So it, Sometimes it's profit, right? That's the most obvious kind. But frequently I find it's for meaning or power or sense of camaraderie, attention, right? We know a lot of politicians do this. A lot of news media uh, personalities do this, right? So it's these are people who really seem to delight in every twist and turn of the conflict and really made a career out of it. There are also people in our personal life who do this, and I'm sure I've done it it is really easy to play that role. Um, and it can happen in every divorce. Again, every divorce mediator has a story about the people on the sidelines, you know, the, the mother-in-law or the sister or the people who are kind of adding jet fuel to the fire <laughs> of the conflict. And it's very important to recognize who they are and distance yourself from them if you can, or at least try to Be conscious of what's in it for them, because they're typically the only ones benefiting in high conflict. So in Curtis's case, he moved across town in Chicago. So literally, it was harder to find him. And he wasn't as in touch with every twist and turn because he he wasn't talking to all these conflict entrepreneurs on a regular basis. And that distance was very, very helpful.
0: In our own conversations and conflicts, listening is part of it. How do we listen better?
3: You know, this is one where I thought I knew how to listen, you know, as a journalist for 20 years, I thought I was a pretty good interviewer, you know, and, uh, and it was very humbling to go for conflict mediation training and realize how bad I was at listening. I used to think that nodding and smiling at the right moments and saying, I hear you, we're listening. That's not listening. That's acting like you're listening, right? (laughs) Right. And people can sense the difference. It's sort of amazing. So what I now try to do all the time in every interview, in every conversation with my family, if there's any emotion in it at all, that you listen for what is the most important thing that person is saying, important to them, not to you. (laughs) Uh, And then you try to play it back for them, not word for word necessarily, but try to summarize it in the most elegant language you can muster. You have to check for understanding, like, did I get it right? With genuine curiosity, this is something that takes a lot of practice, but it's very cool, and it really dramatically changes the interaction, even when you get it wrong. When people feel heard, they start to say more nuanced, interesting, and complicated things. So they lower their guard, and they become more open to information they maybe don't really want to hear.
2: Thank you, Amanda Ripley.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: My recommendation this week, Richard, is the documentary Long Strange Trip about the history of the Grateful Dead. It's on Amazon Prime. A lot of people have seen it. It's, I think, about five or six episodes. And... I've always kind of gone hot and cold on the dead. As a musician, I sometimes found the cult that surrounded the dead to be kind of a little bit annoying. I sometimes, I I love the wonderful influence they had on helping revive all kinds of roots music from blues to, to bluegrass to country. And seeing this documentary about their early days, how they worked together, ways in which the band was really functional and then sometimes really dysfunctional. It's just fascinating.
0: And up next, our conversation, a little bit briefer than normal this time.
2: Amanda Ripley really summarize this book so beautifully, people who are involved in conflict way worse than most of us could ever imagine found ways to transcend it, to rise above it and and to also really dig into the the tools and techniques she talks about but this is not just a matter of oh, we all just need to get along better and and when you say oh you, it's important to listen, she means really listen active listening in such a way that you could then repeat your adversaries' points back to them and show them that you really understand them. That's so key in building that trust.
0: But there are obstacles along the way. One group is the conflict entrepreneurs. Isn't that a great concept? I love that concept. Yes, yes. People who make money, who get fame, who get social media following simply by stoking the fires of anger. And we see it every single night on cable television. Whether you're left or right, there are some pretty awful examples from some very famous people. Uh, Please, turn off cable TV and listen to us read Amanda's book. This is How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Thanks for listening. As always, Miranda Schaefer is our producer. This show is a production of Davies Content. Find out more about what we can do for your podcasts at DaviesContent.com.
1: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.